Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Collateral Damage, a podcast about the impact of substance use on individuals, families, and communities. And uh, today we're going to be introducing you to part two of our uh, uh, very amazing interview with Andrew Berkey, where we talked about the economic impact uh, that this has had on families, individuals, communities as a whole. And Maureen, I know that uh, um, this was this was a good interview for you. You and Andrew uh, go back quite a bit. So, you know what I love? Like I'm, I am a huge Andrew Berkey fan, but <laughs> I think that um, you know he's kind of like thinking about being the president of his fan club. There's lots of people that like him, but I think that it's not just the, uh, the I, he recognizes all the things that we're not doing well. And right. we all know that what's not working, but he has yeah. answers too. And that's, that's really what I like about Andrew is that he, he doesn't sit and complain like, um, and he, he takes those situations and he tries to figure out these out of the box answers to, to, um, to what might change things. And, um, that I like. That yeah, I like. no, me too. I mean, every every time we talked about a topic, it was like there was this, it was almost like there was this underlying big picture uh, solution. Like there's something that right. could be done about it, which is, you know, so much different than, you know, maybe some of the more traditional conversations where we complain about this immovable object, this unfixable scenario. Right. And uh, I think he did a great, a great job of highlighting some of the solutions that people are discussing, that they're making available. And, um, you know, at least in the first part of this, it was, you know, it was primarily focused on outlining the issues that exist. And I think in, in the second part of this interview, he really started to get into the, the solutions, like what can right. be done on a, on a personal or individual level, or, you know, how can you, you get loud and, and, you know, join the movement. Right. And he's a person that um, has, has seen, you know, kind of seen the big picture, seen the problem and addressed it and really created some lasting change and, and different ways of doing things. So I, I'm really excited to see what what he's going to make happen because I don't mm-hmm. think that this is just like conversation for him. This is no. not like an intellectual like <laughs> delve into what we could possibly be doing. He intends on making these things happen, so he's going to be an exciting person to watch in the future. I think. Yeah, well, and you and I talked about this. I mean, the guests that we have on, it's like, you know, I, I'm interested in learning. You know, I'm interested in bringing right. these new uh, these new insights and these new perspectives to our listeners. And, you know, Andrew definitely lays out, you know, from his personal experience in, in treatment, um, you know, with YPR, with just his, his, his involvement, he brings an element of, um, you know, m- maybe just such a big picture view of this, like I was saying earlier, that some right. people just don't get to consider. And, right. um, you know, th- this is this interview was nice. I'm glad we we got enough, but we had to split it in two. And, uh, you know, the yeah. second part of this is, is going to be good for everybody to follow up on. So. Yeah, well, I'm excited to to listen. All right. Well, here is the second half of Andrew's episode. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, I had to be subsidized with my recovery housing. I of mean, course. I was like, Florida. I made five twenty five an hour plus tips, which were entirely in quarters. Can't survive on that. Back through the ghetto. <laughs> With my car that's full of quarters every night, there's no way I could have paid for my recovery house without my parents, you know, subsidizing. I mean, I could contributed 100% of my earnings and still would have fallen short. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, that we all we all go through that. I, mean, I went through that. I coming out of uh, coming out of jail, uh, you know, and trying to put my life back together. It wasn't like I came out with a full time job, able to get my own apartment and care for myself. I mean, you got to be subsidized somehow. And uh, I mean, I. I I have to look at, 
you know, the issue, cause I've been in the industry, I've been, you know, working in this field for the last 10 years and, you know, a really hands-on with families doing interventions. We have a, a men's sober living environment up here, uh, in Massachusetts. And, you know, so we're seeing who's coming out and we're seeing the, the gap in services, so to speak, you know, everything we've been alluding to up to this point that, right. you know, it, it's, if this was to be addressed, I mean, it would take a complete systemic overhaul. I mean, the, the entire system would have to change. Our perspective of it, our approach at, at, toward it is no longer uh, just how do we react to it? How do we deal with the symptoms? I, I heard someone use an analogy the other day of um, uh, pulling people out of a river. Uh, you know, that we're standing on the side of a river and we're just watching all these bodies floating by. And so we're reaching in and pulling them out, pulling these people out of this river. And, you know, it takes somebody to step outside of that role and say, not help me pull these people out of the river. It's, hey, does somebody want to take a walk upstream and figure out why people are jumping into this river? Uh, and, and, you know, it's it's less about the the, the, the reaction to the, the people in the river and more to why it's happening. You know, and I think that's right. where, in my opinion, that's where the focus needs to be is somebody needs to break off. And, yes, people need to be pulled out of the river. Those services need to exist. And I'm glad that they do. But. To a certain extent, I I actually want my my uh, public officials, my my uh, policy changers. I want them to be upstream. I want them to be figuring out why people are jumping off a cliff to get into the river in the first place, and work on that while the rest of us are on the front lines pulling people out of the river. And so it's going to take a, a a collective effort to do it. And um, you know, I, I know we. We always try to get some some insight from our guests, and you know you're you're immersed in this field. And if if you know if there was one thing that you could really uh, focus on or speak up about, or one thing that you could change, or one thing that you could you know speak to our listeners about that they could do differently. I mean, as it relates to this, as it relates to this topic, the the economic impact or just addressing it as a whole. If there was one thing you could change, what would it be? I mean, it would, it would be creating equitable access to care. You should be able to walk in to treatment in this country and get, and it's cheaper, right? I mean, that's the really important thing to understand. Providing treatment for everyone is cheaper than not providing treatment for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it creates... It, it, it's, it's so silly that that's not common sense. Problems. It's all, you know, with like the tax credits thing, right? The day that, you know... Um, your publicly funded or, you know, private in-network facility can go to, you know, whoever, Amazon, and say, hey, here's $10 million in tax liability reduction for you. We need $9.4 million to pay for the, the, you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged people that we're providing services to, you know, that's what people don't understand, right? There's like an argument between like, um, is treatment or harm reduction better? And, and they're the same thing. Like yeah. treatment is a subset of harm reduction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's you wake up, you're homeless and addicted to opioids. You go to detox. You are not homeless at the end of that night. It immediately addresses the systemic problem. It's the same with recovery housing, right? right. Like the recovery house. You know, you want people to be able to build stable lives that are worth staying in recovery for. You have to build. You have to connect the pieces along along the way. I mean, you know. How are you going to apply for a job when you don't have a place to live? And the day we have equitable access to care, you know, 90 percent of the homeless population of every single city would be able to go to treatment for substance use disorder, mental health concerns and or both. And that would actually create 
a small enough population that the people that really fell through the cracks because of like, you know, layoffs and economic downturns and things like that, that are ending up homeless as a result of that would the city would be able to help them, you know, get back on their feet for other reasons. But the over, you know, the majority of people in jail have substance use disorders. The majority of homeless people have substance use disorders and or mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so it's, you know, you're just, you're just looking at so many people, falling through the cracks and the reality is you shouldn't have to come from the background that i come from to be able to access care in this kind you know if you do great like you know you can come to life for purpose we'll get your kid in college it's going to turn out great but that's not a viable solution Mm -hmm. for society as a whole it is you know and i just refuse to accept that we don't have money to provide services because right. we do have money to pay for jail. If we're willing to spend a million and a half dollars over a 20 year period of time, punishing someone for getting caught with drugs in the wrong city, then we can tell you, do you know how many people you can put through treatment for a million and a half dollars? I mean, a, it is a lot. recovery housing. I mean, you could house hundreds of people for years, mm-hmm. right? For not that you even need to, but I mean, it's just such a staggering amount of money And the fact that we have a system where you have to pay money to hire a good lawyer to respectfully decline equitable access to prison so that you can get inequitable access to treatment is fucking insane. I love the the respectfully decline. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's just a terrible system. Yeah. So, I mean, that's I mean, that's what I would say, you know, is we need we need people out there advocating to fill in all these gaps. Because it's not just about, you know, I mean, everyone right now is on this huge kick like, oh, we're going to sue Purdue and Purdue. You know, the economic impact is so massive that if they literally I mean, if they were like, okay, Citizens United, corporations are people, we're going to just we're going to execute a corporation, dismantle (laughs) this entire company and sell up you know, sell its component pieces. Like, I mean, it wouldn't even come close to dealing with the economic impact from one year, let alone the 20 years going back and 20 years going forward that we're going to have to pay for. It's not the answer. It's not the answer. It's alone. That doesn't even get into alcohol and other stuff. Right. Right. Well, you, I mean, you've been, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about like the, the, the macro issue, you know what I mean? And, and it, sure. it's, I, I can't even wrap my head around it sometimes that, you know, all that money spent uh, to, to incarcerate individuals that are struggling with a, a mental illness or a substance use disorder, uh, you know, in addition, uh, the, the tens of millions or even billions of dollars that are spent every year fighting the war on drugs. No, not that I have a problem with people who are employed by uh, those agencies that spend all of their time fighting it, but there's a lot of money spent pushing back a supply when the demand is where the attention needs to be. I mean, again, diverting those funds to the, the services that are actually required and on a macro level, it, it's understandable on a more uh, uh, personal level the the micro level of, of this is, you know, one-to-one, what can we do? You know, what can we, can we, is it changing our language? Is it, is it speaking out more? Is it showing up more? Is it being, is it having people who have children in recovery show up and stand out in front of a place and advocate that wellness is possible. Uh, and this is what it took. You know, I, I feel like that's that's maybe what we can do. That That's something that's palatable to the average person, you know? Sure. Well, absolutely. And, and a b- I mean, a big part of it, you know, the, the problem is so big that, like, it requires legislative changes. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the best ways to get involved is, you know, get involved with your local recovery advocacy organizations. 
you know, call up your senator, call up your congressperson, mm. write letters, show up to hearings. I mean, America is such a dysfunctional political system that the people that show up who are very few and far between are the ones who get to like have a seat at the table and have a voice. I mean, look at uh, look at look at the drinking age, right? The drinking age in the single most valuable market on earth is 21 instead of 18 because of, you know, mad back in the eighties because of like three moms Mm -hmm. being like, this is unacceptable and showing up. I mean, that is, you know, moms are like the Navy seals of the recovery. (laughs) I mean, we can get 10,000 kids in recovery out there and like 15 moms have like a bigger voice, you know, presidents of the United States, governors of states, senators, like nobody messes with moms, right? And literally three moms can get a meeting with a senator. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and and dads too, but I mean, you know, I just, I'm I'm partial to moms because my mom was the one that was like, you know, guns blazing for me the whole time. My dad's very pragmatic. He was like, listen, you know, we got a kid in Georgetown. We got a kid in Oxford. Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, if you got a group uh, of dads, if you got a group of dads out there, it would probably be a different story. We might we might not get as much done as a group of moms, but I, I agree with you. And I love the uh the advocacy. I mean to Maureen, this is your this is your area right here. Mom's advocating and, and, yeah. and you're I, you, I just I think not, not enough people think they can make a difference, but you can. You know, and if everybody just did a little something. But I totally um agree with you when you talk about how it's um I feel sometimes that we're putting this on the backs of people who have lost children to mm. to um, to push this cause, to get out in front of people, to attend those meetings, to, you know, to to meet with the senators. And after your child has gone through this and I mean, I understand I you're like so done. You just you've had enough and you want to go back to living this life that you thought you were going to have if you're lucky enough to have gotten through this with your child. But I feel like I have a responsibility to all those people that have lost children not to do that. And all those people that haven't had to experience this yet, that may, to get out there in front of this, it's not over for me. It's never going to be over for me. And I think that there's that after you go through this, you have a unique knowledge of what it's like to, to live with that fear that, of losing your child. To, to this disease and we have a responsibility to um to keep the conversation going and to make sure that other people don't have to go through this and that we do honor the memories of the people that uh, that we've lost right well and that and, and building out those systems prevents someone else from bearing their kid right like we don't think about it in those terms but like the parents that went in pennsylvania and advocated for free recovery high school for every single family that has an adolescent with substance use disorder, like, you know, some family whose kid's 15 years old and they have no idea how terrible the next three years of their life is about to become, right, is going to benefit from that system. And the end result is they're going to they're going to watch their kid walk across a stage at college, you know, with this little cap and gown instead of like going and visiting him at the local cemetery. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of this work that some parents that, that they may never meet, that they may never know, you know, did. And so that's why it's so important. And that's why the, the local stuff is so important. Right? Everyone's waiting for some some big national solution 
you know, and that'll be great, but like it's it's all about local. It's all about in the trenches, in your specific town, in your specific city. What that looks like is different for everyone, but it it is, you know, it is the sum of all of our little efforts that is gonna turn the tide on something that's this scale. There is no there is no, you know, we, we don't have like a you know, Martin Luther King of the recovery advocacy movement coming that's going to solve this problem. It's going to take all of us. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, but it's a fight worth winning. Right. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, I, you were talking earlier about, um, about piecing things together and um, length of stay. That was the thing that I, I um, saw when my daughter was going through this, that the, the treatment just wasn't long enough. You know, we needed, mm-hmm. we needed longer term. We needed people, we needed our uh, loved ones to be in some form of treatment and some so- kind of support for at least the first year. And that's why my, I mean, my thing has always been housing because if we can't get the treatment, the length of treatment, we can't get that extended overnight. That's not going to happen. I'm uh, sorry to say, I think that we're going to lose a lot of people before we realize that it's 90 days inpatient and then extended periods of time after that. But if we can at least provide good, strong um, recovery housing. Mm. And that's like you were saying, these, these are not insurmountable things to do. To, in Massachusetts, between five and eight hundred dollars usually is mm-hmm. will get you in a um, in a sober house for a month, and there is no reason in the world why we can't that shouldn't be included in, as part of of treatment because you cannot come out of treatment and and have no place to live and do, and you don't have a job and you don't have a means to support yourself and you don't have uh, food. How exactly do people are people expected to get well? It's just not reasonable so um i mean but these are the things that these are the the, you know it's it all comes down to money yeah it always all comes down to money (laughs) it all comes down to money but we're not but we're it's it's not even like we're being smart about this with our money right exactly i mean it's all this shell game you know so you subsidize recovery housing right let's say you subsidize recovery housing I mean, for a tiny amount. Let's say, let's right. say you subsidize it for two hundred dollars. So it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculously <laughs> tiny amount a week, right? right? Ambulance rides are like twenty six hundred dollars, <laughs> right? So if you have thirteen people that get a two hundred dollar per month subsidy for their recovery housing, that now brings that in range, mm-hmm. and one of them doesn't go on one ambulance ride to the ER, so, like that just paid for itself, exactly. Right. If, you know, if and, it was, I mean, that, and that's, a, that's a small expense. It's not even talking about if we were actually providing, you know, treatment for the people that show, you know, which is, I mean, we, you look at like mental, right. So I'm, I'm for harm reduction. I'm pro harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's really important for people that are, that are, you know, in the treatment field that are in long-term abstinence-based recovery to be supportive of harm reduction. But, but, Harm reduction is is just one more like um, overdose prevention sites, for example, right? Like that's just one of many, many, many tools, right? And everyone's like, oh, look at Canada, look at Switzerland, look at Portugal, you know, and in all of those places, you have access to treatment every single day that you go there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here it's it's a huge problem because we because we wouldn't we wouldn't create like if you look at mental health for example which has actually been better about advocating than than substance use disorder even though it's the same organ that's diseased if i show up 
in a hospital emergency room with cigarette burns on my arm, right? I'm putting cigarettes out on my arm and hurting myself. I get 72 hours of immediate services, right? They put me, you know, I get housing, I get to meet with a psychiatrist, there's a lethality assessment. And and the reason we do that as a society is because we want to make sure that I'm not going to die by suicide because I'm not well. If I show up literally dead, I've actually killed myself from an opioid overdose and have to be brought back to life. They're like, oh, well, that's not (laughs) self-harm. So like, see you later 90 minutes after I show up at the hospital. I can actually show up at the same hospital five times in the course of one day from repeated overdoses and they'll just keep treating me, you know, treating me and treating me in a lot of these cities. And now we've got public officials being like, well, you know, Narcan's expensive, so we don't really want to continue doing this, which is totally, I mean, if you think, think about, um, I mean, think about that with like heart disease. If it was yeah. like, oh, this guy keeps eating cheese. We've already used the <laughs> defibrillator twice on him. You know, like like in Wisconsin or some, you know, yeah. cheese place. <laughs> like we are not going to use this defibrillator a third or fourth time. I, I mean, it, w- it would be a class action lawsuit. Right. Again, right. It, it, it does come down to if we actually look at this and again, if the three of us could sit down and we could craft up exactly what it would take to help people to change these things. And, and I always get hung up on the macro side of this is that, and, and I applaud you. I applaud your effort. I applaud all the, the work and effort that you guys are putting in to change policy and to submit this stuff through the, uh, um, uh, um, to, to, to the president, to whoever, you know, I'm not sitting around waiting for the government government to come in and solve this. It is going to take people like yourself on the front lines, people like Maureen, you know, people who are fighting for policy change, people who are showing up at events and screaming and letting them know that what their funding is not working. I just always run up against the, you know, the, the, the machine of it all, you know, and, yeah. and that like, I look at, you brought up Portugal and what they do, these other places, uh, that have made these changes where they've decriminalized everything and diverted all their funds and refocused them to this being a public health issue. And, hey, all that money we were spending to lock people up for being ill and having problems, let's divert it over to this, you know, multi-level treatment center that treats everything from the first floor of HAT, heroin-assisted treatment, all the way up to full residential services. And let's reduce right. crime and let's keep people from dying and let's just get them in the door and they treated it like their citizens were human beings with souls, people who could produce, people who could contribute. And that's insane. And and, and that's like a, a solution-based yeah. approach. But their machine is also so much smaller. You know, ours is so much bigger. The, you know, 300-plus million American experiment where we're still trying to figure it all out. And they're over there generations ahead of us fixing it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And like, there is, there is definitely that component on the federal level that, you know, it, it, there, there's more of us, it's easier to do this with small people or, you know, with a smaller population. Um, but, you know, I mean, and this is one of the reasons to get involved in, in state, you know, state level politics yeah. and state, like, state to state, to state. county level and city level yeah. legislation, right? Because actually, like Massachusetts as a state is smaller than most European nations, most of the big developed European nations that you know are getting some of this stuff done. I mean, mm-hmm. Massachusetts is 
you know, the U.S. is bigger than France, but Massachusetts isn't. Right. And geographically, it's like the size of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, if you can, you know, and, and I mean, and in Switzerland, I mean, they were just like, listen, we're not giving all of these services to people just for them. We're also giving it to the rest for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. you know what we don't like heroin related crime in this country. And you know what they don't have anymore? Heroin really. I mean, it is a big deal sure. if you have an elimination of crime um, because of the fact that you are actually providing services. Every single, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that I have a huge problem with, like these these sort of insufficient services, right? So, like, um, you know, if I'm homeless, if I'm hungry, if I'm addicted, and you know, from a from a physiological standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. I have a substance use disorder, but I, I'll actually go into withdrawals if i don't use this i mean of, of course i'm going to commit crimes you know i i did commit that's survival so, yeah. you got to survive I, yeah. I, I didn't have money and i didn't have the skill set and i was unemployable and my parents weren't going to just like pay for me to buy heroin mm-hmm. so you know that pushed me into this you know and it's like 20 years ago in the 90s and you know it was it was much safer um, to, to have a substance use disorder back right. then than, than now because we didn't have, you know, these vast quantities of fentanyl in the heroin supply. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, like, every single time that I, I went to treatment, like, I didn't commit any crimes while I was in treatment. I didn't use any drugs while I was in treatment. Yeah. My substance use immediately dropped to zero the second I went there. So why wouldn't we want that for everyone? Why, you know, I remember, and you—I mean, you—you you talked about it. Like you remember leaving jail, yeah, right? I mean, remember when you left jail? I mean, I remember when I left jail and I looked back and I saw people who typically had a darker skin complexion than me and typically weren't coming from um, the same socioeconomic bracket that my parents are in, uh, and some of them are still there mm-hmm. for the exact same treatable health condition. Uh, that I got very, very good treatment for multiple times until it worked. Like, why as a society would we not want everyone to have access to the same system of care that I got that obviously works as evidenced by the fact that we're currently having a conversation about it? Right. There's a small town in Massachusetts outside of Boston that um, started to go to, when there was an overdose, took one of the a police officer and um an advocate went to the door knocked on the door and offered help they offered treatment after after the they offered help for the family they offered training on narcan and they offered uh access to treatment which is much easier in massachusetts than it is anywhere else in the country absolutely and in it, yeah. in addition to seeing the <clears throat> seeing the the death rate fall the you know let less overdose deaths in that particular city they also saw lowering of um, petty petty crime. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. crime that they saw, car break-ins, things like that, things that people do because they need drugs, quickly grab something, they saw that reduced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we brought that into the town where I lived, and we started to do the same program. And immediately we saw less overdoses. We saw less deaths because the people that were overdosing had Narcan, which might have been supplied by the police department. And we saw the lowering of petty crime. I mean, it's just so obvious mm. that if you do one thing, the next thing, the next thing happens. That I'm not sure why. 
and I, I am very proud to live here because we have uh, we are way ahead usually on on just about everything. Right. And I, I agree with you. I think this is the way to do it. You make a model somewhere, you know, and then other people replicate it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take time, unfortunately. And in that time, we are going to lose people. Yeah. And I think that point that you just made is so critical. And this is, you know, back to your point about making like like how do i get involved how do i actually affect change right you know you there are there are places in this country where this is already working and it's working at the local level and it's working at the state level and they they've seen but but especially at the local level at county levels at city levels where there's actually a reduction in debts there's there's multiple towns up in massachusetts that have done stuff palm beach county um, Florida has been like really front line on this. Dayton, Ohio. I mean, they did Dayton, Ohio. They just like went around and they were like, "Who needs help?" Like, <laughs> like everyone in what the a city novel like, idea. Yeah, have to stop people from dying. Yeah, like who needs help? What can we do with our limited resources? How are we going to allocate some of this, like you know, block grant money that's coming in and federal aid that's coming in to actually help the citizens here? And in those places, like those towns in Massachusetts, those towns in Ohio, those towns in Florida. I mean, they have seen reductions in the number of overdose deaths at a time when um, other places that didn't implement those policies continue to see deaths increase or stay at very, very high levels. Right. So, I mean, it's this is not like a theoretical, you know, when we talk about like what can be done in America. Right. What can be done in the United States of America, not in Portugal, not in Canada, not in Switzerland, in the United States of America? There are places that have already done this and we already have results. It's not it's not theoretical. It's not like this should work. This actually works. And you're doing it. I mean, there are multiple you know, cities and counties up in Massachusetts that have already done it. Mm-hmm. And the right. whole rest of the country should be modeling their policies off of that. We still need big federal solutions. It's still ridiculous that, you know, five people die from Ebola and we immediately get $5 billion of federal funding. And all the planes shut down. Nobody can leave the country. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have died from, you know, drugs in the last couple of decades. Um, And alcohol has been, you know, just rolling strong for, for a very long time. I mean, like, you know, a, a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we are still, you know, not implementing national solutions. But, but you know, a small, I mean, don't ever underestimate what a small dedicated group of, you know, parents and children and people who have personally been touched to th- by this um, you can do and the impact they can have on a community. Even one person sometimes. Uh, Shelly Young, I know you were just on her. I think you're on her family recovery conference. I am, yeah, I am. Right? Yeah, I mean, she like she just went and was like, "Hey, my kid has a substance use disorder. This mm-hmm. other kid in my town has cancer. I would like them to be treated the same because they both have diseases." And the town was like, "Yeah, that makes perfect sense." And literally, <laughs> yeah. like the whole town changed its view on substance use disorder from one mom. Just a, common, just right, a that's, common sense that's approach. That, that mentality that we we don't know what to do. There's no solution. Mm. And I can't do anything myself. Well, that's just not true. I mean, it's just not true. That's how all change starts. All change starts yeah. with one person believing they can make a difference. Mm. Uh, just to your point, I, I, I hear you guys. We keep talking about this. Uh, what can be done? You know, one what one mom can do. What, you know, one voice can do. And 
you know, what I keep thinking of is and when I was saying the, the big picture is sometimes so overwhelming to think about the machine that needs to change to solve this problem. Oh. The point I'm trying to make <laughs> is that this process can be addressed. And it's uh, the old adage that I hear is, how do you eat an elephant? Anybody know bite how to do time. it? One bite at a time. I heard every, the point. Every single thing it's that we do, <laughs> everything. bite at a time. No, he's 100% is. right. Everything. That's how you have to do it. That's how we're going to have to address this. Is, well, that's it. That's the solution. Um, you know, it's the sum of all the small victories that is really going to turn the tide on this. Uh, I, you know, to your point, though, um, that's 100% correct, right? It, it is the old adage, like, how do you eat an elephant? And it's a bite at a time. And you, yeah. you really need to, um, you know, you really need to think about, like, what we're doing in those terms. Because there is no... There is no one massive overhaul solution. There's, I mean, you look at the biggest bills that they're getting through in Congress, mm. and they're, I mean, they are woefully insufficient to address this problem yeah. as a single piece of legislation, right? And it is, it is all of these little victories at the at the local level, at the state level, little right. private nonprofits that are being set up and the impact that they're having on the community. It's um, the journalist that decides they're going to, you know, cover recovery instead of just death, yeah. which is, yes. you know, something that I think is a tremendous problem. Right. Uh, you know, like, like nobody cares, right. You can be like 500 people go to college, and like do well and become successful members of society. And they're like, right. oh, that's not, you know, that's not uh, a flashy enough story. No, it's so true. I mean, nobody wants to. It's like we, we're stuck on on death, and I understand because that's it's horrifying how many people we're losing. Mm. But we also have to talk about how many people are are um, recovering from this and living productive lives and contributing to society and and um, and you know remaining here to do good work. And we're not talking about that. So it's allowing people to write them write. The, everyone off paint them mm. with a broad brush we're going to lose them anyhow what's the point right yeah and, well I, I i mean that's actually one of the things i really like about you, you know your book and your story and like the message that you convey i mean like obviously the mom with a baseball bat at the beginning is like pretty <laughs> awesome <laughs> it's yeah. like something out of a tarantino film but, <laughs> but no but i mean the thing that's like really cool and one of the things that's really cool about your message is that you know like she makes it Right. And, if, and we, we have to tell that side of the story, too. Right. We need I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. We need to be outraged at the level of death. Like if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Mm. But at the same by the same token, like we need to carry a message of hope, because, I mean, my God, if you are a family of a child who develops a substance use disorder and the only New, you know, and, and it's on everything, right? Like MSNBC and Fox News are covering the story the same way, right. which is a whole bunch of people are dying, yeah. right? right? If you if you don't have a message of hope, like, I mean, what, you know, like, why would you even fight? I think there's a lot of people, you know, that, that don't know that there's actually like hope at the end of the tunnel and that there is, that it, you know, that it's a fight worth fighting and they're trying to figure it out. And this is why you have, you know, all these families that are like running like bootleg treatment centers in their basement, um, you know, with like a PlayStation three and, you know, like 
some some medication right but they're not getting all of these other aspects they're not you know and and this is and particularly with young people i think it's so important because this mm -hmm. is like what young people need you know if recovery is awesome you're going to stay in recovery right? right and all those things that like i did you know once upon a time when i was young <laughs> were really critical to my recovery right yeah. it's the glow in the dark ultimate frisbee on the beach it's you know getting together with my buddies on fourth of july and like you know, we're not drinking beer, but I mean, we were definitely setting off an excessive amount of fireworks, mm. uh, you know, and, and all of these different things, right? Like going in, going to concerts, like 20 or 30 kids deep, yep. um, you know, so because, it, right, because you, you cross a threshold, right? If I go to, if I go to like a concert or like a college football game, like by myself, like, sure, that's a, you know, recovery hostile environment, right? But right. if I go with 50 other people in recovery, I mean, it's all awesome. anymore. Absolutely. Not anymore. I think the re whole recovery, uh, you know, the, the activities related around, you know, sober activities and uh, recovery related activities are starting to catch on. Thank goodness, because I don't understand the whole idea that we can't do anything without drinking or, or, or using drugs. I mean, even for people that don't have a problem, mm. is that really is that really a thing like you can't? You can't go and have a good time without that. That's a problem. You might want to look in the mirror and ask yourself if you have a problem as well, if you can't spend an afternoon or an evening without drinking. Yeah, they actually have, um, Where I think it was in Chicago Tribune, I was reading something about this, where they actually have like um, a number of people that are sort of just, like they're not really like in recovery from a substance use disorder, like possibly they might've had like substance misuse, but they're actually setting up like social activities um, for people just that don't drink because it's so prevalent in our society. Like it's really hard to go and meet people without alcohol being part of the equation. Yeah. Uh, if you're like a 25 year old, it's like, it's everywhere. It's not like you don't go bowling, you go drinking and going and go bowling. Yeah. What was it called? It was like the weirdest. Oh, sober curious. Like you ah. should it. it was really weird. They have these like oh. events that are set up and they're not for people that are in recovery per se. They're just like, you know, I feel like I don't repeat the same joke over and over and over again. And you actually have a lot of people that um, you have a lot of people that uh just don't, that that don't drink that don't have a problem and don't use drugs or you know or do it in, in a non-problematic fashion and those people are all of our allies too right, right? i mean we got to include all those people in the absolutely well. absolutely yeah. well andrew thank you so much for being on i really appreciate it you know i think you're fascinating and brilliant and all things good so i really appreciate you coming on and sharing and um hopefully you know we'll year from now when you're president <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, hopefully you'll be on again i yeah. I, I you know always love hearing what, what's going on in your head uh thanks so much i really appreciate you having me all right guys thank thanks. you andrew take care I, man I, I that was just a the second part of this interview with andrew Berkey was just amazing and uh he's I, great I we, he is great and you know getting to uh you know the the, the cliffhanger of how can we actually address this where we left it in part one, you know, giving everybody what they've been waiting to hear, which is starting to talk about the, the solutions and what people can do on an individual right. level, on a group level. Like, you know, if if this was to get addressed, uh, what right. would it take? 
right? I, that's what I love about him. He's not a hand wringer. You know, what mm-hmm. are we going to do? What are we going to do? He actually has answers. I don't know. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of him in the future. I hope anyhow. Well, yeah, him and, and I mean, all the other people that are out there advocating for this. Like these are big ideas made by big people, you know, that are trying to uh, change the next generation of, of how we address this and make sure that people have access to, to treatment and that people are getting the care that they need. I think he said something like, you know, uh, on like a primary care level, like just being able to walk through the front door and getting the services. Like, why shouldn't you if it's a medical condition? Exactly. You know, like exactly. why is why isn't it treated like anything else? And why are people so baffled and confused when someone comes in looking for help? Like, it shouldn't right, be that because, way at this point. Uh, totally agree. I right. totally agree. And it's good to hear somebody who's who's I I believe is going to make some changes, much mm-hmm. like yourself, Mister Wilson. Oh, me? Who yes. okay. I first started going to your um your groups on Thursday nights mm. to steal all your information. And now yes. I am so happy that you've <laughs> written a book and I don't have to try to remember it. I can just look it up and um, steal your information directly from your book. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I feel mm-hmm. the same way about the book. Uh, and so <laughs> I believe, are you talking about this book right here, Loving Lines? I, I, written? I am, okay. as a matter right. of fact. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and so when I, when I wrote this book, um, it started off as a just a whole bunch of uh, um, the things that I like to share, you know, the stories, the analogies, the metaphors, the things that uh, I've used over the last decade to try to help families uh, and individuals understand substance use better, uh, to understand the family dynamics better. And so it originally started as me just writing a whole bunch of things down so that I could free up some space in this aging mind of mine. And, uh, you know, it was it was so that I didn't have to remember them all the time. So, uh, but then it became a book Uh, and then it turned out that it was something that I could get to people and, um, you know, in a very similar way to, uh, you know, the reasons why you wrote your book was to reach the people who maybe, maybe don't understand or maybe have never experienced this before or really don't know uh, if they do have someone in their family that's struggling and what they can do about it. So it was, um, it was a journey to write. Um, It was definitely... Uh, a journey to try to uh, get to a place where I was comfortable putting it out there for people to read and review and and give me feedback on because I had never done it before. Uh, But the book is definitely uh, geared toward family members, individuals, somebody that loves somebody that might be struggling. I've even had people uh, who they themselves have struggled and read through, you know, the, the, the first section of the book, which is more focused on my own experience and helping people understand uh, my struggle with substance use and how I was able to get well and what that looked like for me and having people kind of read that and identify with it and, and realize that maybe there is some, there is some hope. Uh, you know, the simple fact that I am here now talking to you and that we have this podcast and that I've written this book and that I'm working with families. I mean, there is hope for people just like myself that were as bad as I was that now you can be here, you know, yeah. what would you, what would you have thought if somebody would have told you 10 or 15 years ago that you'd be doing this right now? I probably would have laughed and then done some yeah. drugs, you know, because yes. that's where I was. So. It was the the yeah. idea of having a normal life was hilarious and unacceptable. <clears throat> the idea that I would be uh, anything other than what I was was just laughable at the time, uh, not because I didn't think I could do it, but because there was there was no pathway. There was no path in that direction. What I was right. doing was. I was surviving the day. I was surviving the moment. I was, um, you know, I was trying to wait to trying to find a way to feel good on the inside, uh, and, and I was trying to find a way to get relief uh, from a world that I didn't understand. You know, right. so 
That's what I love about your book. So for a parent reading it, um, who doesn't really, I mean, you think you understand these things, but I don't think you really can completely understand until you, if, if you haven't gone through it yourself. Mm-hmm. So you give this, un, this unique perspective of someone who has gone through this, but right. then also um, like the heads up from mm-hmm. someone who's gone, who's gone through this. Yeah. So you have this great way of putting everything in um, just very clear and, um, and telling stories and, and talking about your own experience, but also a lot of what you say, I think to myself, Oh my God, that's so simple, but mm-hmm. I never thought about it like that before. And, and that's what I love about your book. And I love about, you know, when you speak and when you, um, in the groups you have locally, but the book, you really do sum up a lot about a lot of what you talk about in groups. And it's always that moment of, Oh my God, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. And, that's why I like to steal your stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's also why I would recommend your book to any parent that's going through this, because it's just, um, it's just really good advice. And, um, you know, we all need as much advice as we can get. And it's very Absolutely. nonjudgmental and mm-hmm. not, you don't have, this is the way to do it, but it makes you see more clearly how to go about thinking about this in a different way. And I think right. it's a very, very valuable, valuable book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will I will just say that, you know, when writing the book, it's a very complex issue. You know what I mean? The, the, the substance abuse itself and the dynamics within families. But, you know, what I've learned is that, uh, you know, if 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 you really do understand something, you should be able to explain it simply. And that's why I made this a an easy to read book uh, full of very simple explanations about something very complex and challenging. And I think once you can wrap your head around just the the basics of this, it shows that it's manageable. It can be addressed. Um, you know, there is a solution, there is hope, uh, there is a reason to keep fighting. And, and just like, you know, your book, my book, all the people who are trying to help these, these struggling individuals understand that there's, there's a chance, there's, there's hope. Don't, don't give up, don't stop fighting, don't stop learning, don't stop, you know, accumulating information and educating yourself and your family system, because in the end, maybe you can do something different. You know, maybe you can actually help. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, I forget that, I'm thinking about it from a parent's perspective, but really for somebody who's struggling, who's who's going back and forth between recovery, mm-hmm. to, to this book is is valuable for somebody like that too. And so it's called Loving Lions, right? It is, yeah. Loving Lions, and, a guide for families struggling with addiction. And where would you buy this book? So you can get this book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or you can go to lovinglions.com, which will tell you all the different ways that you can get the book. Um, or you can just call me directly if you know me. <laughs> as you said, plenty of ways to get it. Uh, and the idea is just to get the message out there as far as we possibly can. So It's awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, as always, if you'd like to find out, uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.